Well, thank you. And thank you for having me. It's a, it's a privilege to be here and just to uh, commend you guys and gals this morning as, as, as we've gotten to know of some of you and just been welcomed, right? I was sitting there with Toby, what, five minutes ago, and she's like, man, they're really good at greeting people. <laughs> they're very friendly. We need to work on that. <laughs> so just to commend you guys, you guys are super friendly, super welcoming. That's excellent. Has God ever done something in your life that you really didn't expect? Something that made you uh, perhaps pause a bit and think to yourself, you know, what in the world is God doing? You're not quite sure that God actually knows what he's doing. I mean, you ever had one of these moments? Like when your dog conspicuously wakes you up at 5 a.m. desperately needing to go out to the bathroom, right? Abnormal. So you get up, though, you let her out, and there just happens to be a new furry little friend out there, and this furry little friend just happens to be all black with a bright white stripe down its back with a defense mechanism, right, that tends to leave things a bit pungent and smelly. And all of this happening at 5 a.m. in the morning. I mean, fate and the sovereign hand of God is obviously against you here. And this obviously happened to my wife and I not too long ago. But then for some reason, our dog decided that she hadn't had enough of that smelly skunk juice and she wouldn't got sprayed a week and a half later. So if you're like me then, you've most likely had quite a few of these seemingly coincidences happen. Uh, Times when your faith is being shaken. And you have a sneaking suspicion that what's happening is being orchestrated on purpose. Times when you're really not sure things are going to work out okay in the end. Because you really can't see an upside to what's happening. And these events are producing questions like, well, how could God let this happen? Why is God doing this? Both valid questions, for God is unequivocally sovereign. But these are valid questions that have biblically sound answers. So so, so what do you do in these trying situations when God does something that you didn't expect him to do? This is the question that our text in Genesis 22 answers. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 22, and please stand as we read the Word of God. Genesis 22, verses 1 to 14. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, 
Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Father, we thank you for your word, for who you are and what you've done. And so I want to pray once again, Father, as it's been prayed so many times this morning already, may your word go out and may it not return to you empty. May the frailties and fallenness of a sinful human being not impede your word this morning. May your Holy Spirit do his work. Amen. And you may be seated. So this story in Genesis divides nicely into three separate scenes. Scene one, an unexpected request. Scene two, an unqualified response. And scene three, an unequaled substitution. So an unexpected request, an unqualified response, and an unequaled substitution. So scene one, an unexpected request, verses one and two. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Genesis 22 starts off with an after these things. Which should immediately alert the reader that what is said next is dependent upon what was just said. Meaning you need the preceding context to rightly understand what's going on in Genesis 22. Hold on to this, keep this in your minds, I will come back to it. It's always very important to pay attention to Pay attention to all the words that you find in Scripture. Nothing's there without reason. So after these things, so some other important things have taken place. God tested Abraham. This is the linchpin in the entire story. This holds it all together. The fact that God is 
testing Abraham. From the get-go, the reader of Genesis 22 is privy to knowledge that Abraham does not have. The fact that Abraham is being tested. Abraham does not know that he's being tested. And because Abraham is being tested, this should arouse a question. Is this okay for God to do? I mean, well, it must be, since God does it. But that's kind of a cop-out answer, right? Because as we read the rest of the story, doesn't this testing make you feel a bit uncomfortable? I mean, he is testing Abraham. What if Abraham fails the test? Doesn't this mean Abraham would be sinning? Yeah, of course, without a doubt, right? And this is one of the most significant interpretive issues with this story. For James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So whatever is going on with the testing of Abraham is not the tempting James says God cannot do in James chapter 1, verse 13. God cannot tempt you to sin, but he can most assuredly test you. One commentator described it this way. With a personal object, object it means test another to see whether the other proves worth. Satan tempts us to destroy us, but God tests us to strengthen us. God is testing Abraham, but has he tested you lately? How'd you, how'd you do? Did you fail the test? Well, why? Did you pass the test? How did you do it then? And what is Abraham's response when God calls to him? Here I am, he says. Abraham is eager and willing to serve. God says, jump. Abraham jumps. No hesitation, no feet dragging. I'm ashamed to say this has not always been my response when God has called upon me. But in my and our own defense here, Abraham hasn't heard God's request yet, right? He doesn't know what it is God wants him to do. I mean, God, for all Abraham knows, might be asking him to try out his like, latest ice cream flavor or something menial, something ridiculous. Point is, Abraham doesn't know it's coming. And he certainly doesn't know it's a test. It's an unexpected request. And here it is, verse 2. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. He's got to throw that in there, right? And go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I mean, what a request. In all honesty, church, I don't think I'd be able to do this. But let's, let's break down this request by God. God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Huh. But, but author of Genesis, Isaac is Abraham's second son. He has another son, Ishmael, by Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian servant. Has the author of Genesis forgotten what he just wrote in Genesis 16? I mean, has he forgotten that Abraham fathered Ishmael just six chapters prior to this? Well, of course not, right? 
Well, then what is the author of Genesis doing calling Isaac Abraham's only son? I mean, he does it multiple times. He is speaking about and foreshadowing the only son that would eventually come from the Father who is in heaven. You see, what you need to realize about this story is that it's not just a story about Abraham and Isaac. It's also a purposeful foreshadowing by Moses about a heavenly father who would one day sacrifice his one and only son. Listen to what John says. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This story, like the rest of the Old Testament, is about Jesus. The words of Christ himself, Luke 24, 25-27, And he, that is Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and all of the prophets, the entire rest of the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures, he says it a third time, the things concerning himself. All of our Bible is about Jesus. Every single chapter and every single book and everything is meant to point us to Christ. This story is no exception. Notice also the place where Abraham is to take Isaac to sacrifice him. The land of Moriah on the mountain that God will show him. And what will one day be built on a certain mountaintop in the land of Moriah? The temple of God. Second Chronicles 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. The place where the temple would be built, where human beings would come to have a relationship with the true and living God, where all the temple sacrifices and atonements for sin would take place, a certain mountaintop in the land of Moriah. The exact place where God tells Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him. Just, just a coincidence? Yeah, probably not, right? For one day, the ultimate sacrifice would be made, making his very own body the temple. And he is none other than Jesus the Christ, the eternal Son of God. But what is clear about these couple of verses in Genesis 22 is it is an unexpected request. A request to sacrifice a son that you love to a God that you love even more. And this request is followed by an unqualified response. So scene two, an unqualified response. Verses 3 to 8. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, 
Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. You remember back when you were a child? It's Christmas Eve. Can't, can't sleep. Too excited about the next day being Christmas. I mean, so you lay there in bed, uh, staring at the ceiling, just waiting. And then eventually, boredom and sheer exhaustion will drive you into a fitful sleep, only to wake up again at 4 a.m. to lay there again and wait. You guys remember this? Maybe it was just me. There's an anticipation and eagerness with which you treat Christmas as a child. You wake up early, right? No longer able to contain your patience, eager to get about the day and open the presents, right? You remember that as a child? Well, this describes Abraham as a very old man when it comes to being about the business of God, regardless of what that business might be. You see, Christmas is pleasurable as a child because children are, for the most part, selfish. uh, And you get things at Christmas. I mean, you derive pleasure from getting things. Abraham derives pleasure from obeying God. He wants to please God. Verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. I mean, he rose early in the morning. I wish that would always be my response when God calls on me. A dedicated and committed obedience is Abraham's first response. Did you notice by any chance those extra little details in verse 3? The author recounts how Abraham saddles his donkey, took two servants, took his son Isaac, cuts the wood. I mean, why include these seemingly menial and excessive details? It causes the reader to have to slow down a bit, doesn't it? To contemplate along with Abraham the gravity of the request that God has just made. Take your son and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. I mean, what do you think Abraham was thinking as he saddled the donkey for himself and his son? Or as he cuts the wood that would soon be used to consume the body of his son? These tasks don't take a whole lot of brain power. It leaves one with some time for thinking, some inner contemplation. Oh, Abraham's reaction to God's request is not normal. Why is Abraham so willing to obey God in the sacrificing of his son? Because Abraham knows the God he serves and he trusts him without reservation. Abraham trusts God implicitly, even with the life of his son. And here's why. Here's why. Remember before I said the context of Genesis 22 is important? 
Well, turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 21. It's just one chapter back. Remember the story intros with an after these things. Genesis 21, verse 12. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Well, wait a second. Wait, wait, wait a second. Did I read that correctly? God promises Abraham in the immediately preceding chapter that Isaac will be his heir, the child through which the offspring of Abraham shall be named. Yep, sounds like it, looks like it. But but, but what is this offspring God is referring to? For that, we need to go back just a little bit further. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I will make of you a great nation. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it is through Isaac that these promises will come to fruition by the testimony of God himself. Abraham has faith in the promises of God. Do you? Are your actions, thoughts, words, deeds molded and shaped by the character, nature, and promises of God? Better question. This one convicts me. Do you even know what God's promises are in order for them to shape your behavior and attitudes? Abraham is willing to obey God because God has already promised him that Isaac will be the heir through which an entire nation and the blessing of blessings will come. Verses 4 and 5, Genesis 22. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. These had to be the longest three days of Abraham's life. I mean, can you imagine the mental agony? The the second guessing, doubts creeping in? Am I sure that's right? Is this right? I mean, can you hear the hushed tones and the questions from the two servants that Abraham brings with him? Why is Abraham so did we, do, did we do something wrong? Ah, oh, but that somber silence can't last for forever because they finally arrive. And listen again, a little closer this time, to what Abraham says to his two servants. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Well, this is kind of an odd thing to say. Don't you think? I mean, the Hebrew literally reads, I and the boy will go over there and worship, and we will come again to you. 
Both verbs are first-person plurals, meaning that Abraham expects to come back with his son Isaac. But, but, but why would he think that again? Because of the promise that God made him in Genesis 21. Isaac must be the child of promise, and God cannot lie. Abraham doesn't expect to, to return without his son Isaac in tow. And what is more, remember back to Genesis 12? where God promises Abraham that an entire nation will come from him, a nation so numerous that they will outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. This kind of makes the request of God in verse 2 all the more weird and unexpected, doesn't it? I mean, how is Isaac going to be the one through whom an entire nation comes, God, if, if I sacrifice him and he dies? I mean, Isaac can't be both the child of promise and the burnt offering. Can he? The author of Hebrews tells us why Abraham was so willing to sacrifice Isaac. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Faith demands radical, unquestioning obedience. This is definitely an unexpected request. But a request only to be outdone and overshadowed by the faithfulness of Abraham's response. Verses 6 to 8. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. The text in English is a tad deceiving on this point of Isaac being a boy. I mean, because whenever I read this word boy, I think of a little boy, you know, perhaps 8 to 12-ish. But that's just not the case here. I mean, Isaac is most likely in his late teens to early 20s. Isaac is in the prime of his life. That's why Abraham has him carry all the wood for the burnt offering. And this is no small amount of wood, right? However, the author of Genesis recounts that Abraham has Isaac carry the wood not only because Isaac is younger and stronger, but because one day another son would carry his own wood for his own sacrifice. Listen to John again. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he, that is Jesus, went out bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Isaac carries his own wood for his own sacrifice, 
Because one day, Jesus would carry the wood for his atoning sacrifice. The author of Genesis is very deliberate with the details in this story. And did you notice also that the repetition at the end of verses 6 and 8? So they went both of them together. Uh, Just Abraham and Isaac now. Father and son, alone, to carry out the request of God, the sacrificer and the sacrificee. Isaac might be carrying the physically heavier load, but the burden that Abraham carries is much, much weightier. For Abraham carries the fire and the knife. The two instruments that he would use to kill and burn his son. You ever do something a bunch of times? And you do it so many times it becomes one of those muscle memory deals. You do it so often you can pretty much just do it in your sleep, that, that sort of thing. Offering sacrifices to God is one of those things for Abraham and his family. You know how I know this? Not only because of the kind of guy that the scriptures describe Abraham to be, but because of Isaac's question in the story. What an innocent little question, right? Hey, Dad, we have the fire in the wood for the sacrifice, but what about the lamb? I mean, we have everything for the sacrifice, but the actual sacrifice. Isaac has done this enough times to realize what is required. And the absence of a sacrifice has him a bit flummoxed. Isaac isn't sure what's going on. Abraham hasn't filled him in yet. Isaac is confused, and rightly so. Well, you know, Abraham is getting up there in age a bit, so perhaps Isaac thought, well, you know, maybe old age has gotten to dad and he completely forgot the lamb for a sacrifice. Hence the prompting question from Isaac. But such is not the case. Abraham didn't forget anything. And Isaac is soon to learn this. Abraham is ready and prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac to God. For he believes in the promises that God made to him. Even though it doesn't make sense. He trusts God with every fiber of his being. It is an unqualified response to God's unexpected request. But the third scene is still to come. Scene three then. An unequaled Substitution. An unequaled substitution. 22, 9 to 14. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wooden order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. A lot has transpired between verses 8 and 9. I mean, by this time, Abraham must have explained to Isaac the whole lack of sacrifice thing. Isaac now knows that he is to be the sacrifice. Abraham builds the altar, lays the wood in order, then binds his son and lays him on the altar. This astounds me. Remember, Abraham is very, very old. At this point, Isaac is the son of both his and Sarah's old age, right? I mean, Sarah is so old that before she even conceives Isaac, she stopped her monthly cycle. I mean, her womb has dried up. This is how the text describes it. Meaning Isaac, being a young man in the prime of his life, most likely early 20s, can easily overpower his frail and aged father easily, right? But he doesn't. He allows himself to be bound and placed on the altar willingly. Reminds me of another sacrifice that went willingly. Isaiah 53, uh, all of us Like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Just as Abraham sacrifices a willing and complicit Isaac, so too would God the Father sacrifice his willing and joyful Son, Jesus Christ. Verses 10 to 12. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. The scene is set. The altar's made, the wood is piled, the sacrifice is bound in its place, the knife is sharpened, and all that is left is to carry out the requested deed. I mean, the minutia of details is telling here. The author doesn't want you to miss anything. 
And isn't it just like God to wait till the last possible second? I mean, the knife is poised, ready to be plunged into Isaac, and only then does God stop this test that he instigated just days before. Abraham's response in verse 11 is the same as in verse 1. Here I am. I am ready and willing to serve. I mean, church, can you see, can you see this scene? No wind blowing, no one speaking. Just eerie silence. Isaac on the altar, bound, sweating nervously. Abraham sweating even more profusely, shaking in apprehension. And then Abraham slowly raises the knife. And then literally out of nowhere, a voice calls, Abraham! Abraham startles and, I'm I'm here. And then Abraham hears what he's been waiting to hear all along. What What the reader knew was coming. Don't harm your son. I mean, the size of relief from both Abraham and Isaac. And what else does God say there? Now I know that you fear me. What does this mean? Now I know. I I thought God knew all things. That God is omniscient knowing perfectly the past, present, and future to the most meticulous and infinitesimal detail. God is all-knowing. Then what is the author of Genesis referring to when God says, Now I know. Since it can't be some new knowledge or new truth. Let me help you with this one. By quoting another verse in Genesis, where the same exact word is used. Genesis 4, verse 1. Got to be more sensitive here. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now is this first saying that Adam and Eve went into the tent, Adam takes out his notepad and pen, brown hair, blue eyes, measuring tape, five foot four, walks out of the tent, and voila, Eve gets pregnant with Cain. Is, is, is that what this is saying? No, of course not, right? It's silly. This is talking about intimacy. Relational knowledge. In the same vein, at the conclusion of God's test with Abraham, there is a deepening of relational Intimacy. This test is all about Abraham's relationship with the God that he serves. And since relationship goes, relationships go both ways, Abraham to God and God to Abraham, God says, now I know. The relationship is much deeper now. You know me much better, Abraham, and I you. Your faith and trust in me has grown, and now... We are that much closer. And please, church, please, don't miss this. Don't miss this. This was the point all along. This test for Abraham was always meant to deepen the relationship between God 
and Abraham. God tests those he loves. He will test his children because the tests draw you closer to him. They are a means of sanctification in your life. They mold you and shape you more into the character and nature of Jesus Christ. And what is more, our Lord and Savior was no exception. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. If God didn't spare his own son, testing him by leading him into temptation, why do you think you'd be any different? I mean, Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. We don't pray, lead us not into temptation for no reason. God is refining you. This is why James says, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds, because the testing of faith produces steadfastness. Verses 13 and 14. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. There is obviously something supernatural going on here, right? I mean, Abraham just happens to look up, and there just happens to be a ram caught in a thicket. A, a, a ram that up until this point, neither he nor Isaac had noticed. It seems like God has his hand all over this story. I mean, his providence is unmistakable. God provides a substitute sacrifice. An unexpected request an unqualified response with an unequaled substitution. But why, Jeremy, an unequaled substitution? I mean, a ram isn't quite an unequaled substitution. There's been many rams sacrificed. Let's jump back up in the story to a verse that I skipped. Genesis 22, verses 7 and 8. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. But at the end of the story, God provides a ram. I mean, what happened to the lamb that God was supposed to provide for himself? The answer comes thousands of years later. Do you recall the words of John the Baptist upon seeing Jesus? 
The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There was another Lamb still to come. A lamb that God would provide for himself as a substitute sacrifice for sinners like you and like me. And we must not forget that this salvation that we have so undeservedly been given has only come about by the ultimate test on our Savior. The test of the cross itself. You remember what happened to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? I mean, it was a test so severe that his sweat was like drops of blood, where while in the midst of the test, hanging on the cross, Jesus cries out to his Father, Why have you forsaken me? Oh, no, church. There was no last-minute halting in the sacrifice of the true Son. This is that single detail in the whole of this story of Genesis 22 that just simply does not fit. Isaac gets spared, Jesus does not. Instead, the Lord of glory dies on that cross and gets buried in the tomb of a rich man. But death cannot hold Jesus, the only Son of God. For three days later, he is raised from the dead, and he now sits ruling and reigning in heaven at the right hand of his Father. And the death that Jesus suffered could be the atoning death for you for the forgiveness of your sins. All you need to do is come to him. Fall at his feet. Repent of your old sinful life and follow Jesus. There was an unexpected request followed by an unqualified response leading to an unequaled substitution. All for the sake of of relationship. For God tests those he loves. The testing of God proves you are a child of God. And Jesus fulfills all the details in this story. I mean, this story is about Jesus. Jesus is the one human being who always, in every instance, was eager and willing to obey. Sinless, though tempted beyond anything we have known or can imagine. Jesus carries the wood for his own sacrifice. Jesus goes willingly to the cross. Jesus submits to the Father for the joy that is set before him. Jesus is the lamb that would come, provided by the Father, for the Father. For on the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And, we we get the and here, it has been provided. Can you feel the spirit tugging on your heartstrings this morning? Then I implore you with every fiber of my being, do not ignore him. Embrace him. Come to Jesus. And once you come to him, you will realize that a relationship with Jesus is what you've always wanted. Jesus is who you are looking for. 
But don't be surprised that when after you come to Jesus, if your Savior begins to test you, because he wants you all to himself. And the tests, church, always serve to draw you closer to him. Amen? Amen. Would you pray? Father, we love you. We want nothing more than to please you. So, Father, would you send your spirit to empower us to please you? Would you implant within us the desire to please you? And, Father, may we realize that as you take us through these tests, that they are the means that you use to mold us and shape us more into the character and nature of your Son. Our Savior, the one who bore our penalty. Father, have your way with us. Mold us and shape us. Use us for the expansion of your kingdom. Amen.